Welcome to The Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today we are joined by Janet Levine. Janet, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Emily. Janet is a partner with Kendall Brill and Kelly LLP. And Janet serves in a number of roles for CJS. Janet has been a chair of the section, is currently co-chair of the awards committee, serves on the CLE board, and also serves as the budget advisor for the criminal justice section. So definitely keeps busy and is carving out time for us today to help us with our trial tip series. She is sharing her expertise as we discuss the topic of laying a foundation. So Janet, I'm about to turn the time over to you. Listeners, again, this is part of our series of trial tips. So this conversation is meant to be practical advice, helping us all understand why this is important and how you can do this most successfully. So Janet, why don't we just start with a pretty basic introduction here? Just give us some scope of what we're going to talk about first. Why should laying a foundation even be part of this series? The most important thing to remember about laying a foundation is if you can't lay your foundation, you can't get your evidence in. So let me just talk about what we're going to talk about for the next 20 minutes. This isn't an evidence primer. I'm not going to go through the rules of evidence and all of the reasons evidence can be kept out or all the reasons you can get evidence in. It's not a 20 minute presentation on how to examine a witness. It's not about how to examine an expert. It's just about the simple step of laying the foundation. And a foundation is exactly what you think it is. It's the foundation, the basis for your testimony, your exhibit, what's to come. It's easy, but preparation is the key like it is in every piece of a trial. Also, This is directed to criminal trials, not civil trials. While the rules of evidence are basically the same for criminal and civil, not always the same. In civil cases, the judge or judges often want you to deal with your foundational issues in advance of trial and hash them all out in advance of trial. So this is meant for a criminal trial. Right, thank you for that distinction. So Janet, you did tell us what you were going to tell us, so this will be a little repetitive, but what does it mean to lay a foundation? So laying a foundation is really authenticating evidence. I guess it's essentially proving that saying that we're all so sick of hearing it is what it is, or rather it is what you're telling the jury that it is. So basically what you're doing is proving what evidence, the rule of evidence 901 says. And what the rule says is, to satisfy the requirement of authenticating or identifying an item of evidence, the proponent must produce evidence sufficient to support a finding that the item is what the proponent claims it is. Really, that's it. It is what it is. And that's what you're doing in laying your foundation. The rule of evidence we're talking about, the basic one, Federal Rule of Evidence 901. And 901 itself lists some examples of how you go about authenticating evidence and getting it in as a foundation. Okay, so what are the rules that you need to know as a practitioner on either side of the trial when it comes to laying a foundation? So Emily, you asked what the rules are that you need to know as a practitioner on either side. 
what I would say to anybody that's going to do a trial, I say it to my partners, I say it to my associates, I say it to anybody I talk to, you need to know the rules of evidence. If you're in federal court, it's the federal rules of evidence. If you're in state court, it's the state rules of evidence. In most states, the state rules of evidence are really the equivalent to the federal rules. Not in my state in California, we're weird on everything. So you need to know your particular rules of evidence that controls. Which of those rules do you need to know? You need to know all of the rules, every one of them. The nice thing about the rules of evidence is they aren't long. And once you know evidence, they're really not complex. But when you're getting ready for trial, you need to be reminded which rules apply to which piece of evidence. Before trial, you have every piece of evidence, everything you have that you want to get into evidence or that you know you want to make sure the other side keeps out of evidence. And with each piece, you ought to see why it should be admissible or why it shouldn't be admissible. How are you going to make that foundation? How are you going to prove it is what it is. It is what it says it is. And so you're going to have to look at the federal rules of evidence to see with each piece of evidence how you're going to do that. So forgive me, this is a little repetitious here. You were just speaking to this, but for thoroughness, would you just clarify why should you do all of this? Well, if you don't do it, you're not going to get your evidence in. A foundation is a foundation. You can't build a building if you don't have the foundation on which to build that building. You can't read a novel if you can't do your ABCs. The foundation is the basis. And if you can't show why that piece of evidence is authentic, why it is what it is, you can't get it in. And you're going to look really silly when you're sitting up there. I had a case some years ago. It was a healthcare fraud case. And for some reason, the prosecutor never spoke with the person he thought was his key witness in advance. And instead, just went ahead and put the witness on the stand and started to ask questions about the relevant parts of the case. But he never bothered to find out if this witness was somebody that knew anything about what he was asking. And they weren't. And every question he asked for three hours, I objected to because he couldn't show the foundation. After three hours, the judge got tired, threw the witness off the stand, struck whatever testimony there was from that person, and we went on. Needless to say, he looked silly. I looked a little obstreperous, but, but good. The judge actually respected me for it, and it was really turned out quite well. So part of the key is to get your right witness, right? Who is the witness that can authenticate that document, that can make it look like what it is? The other reason you want to build a foundation, it's the foundation for your story. If you're going to tell a story to the jury, you better have the people that can tell that story and have the jury understand that those are the people that can tell the story or that evidence is part of the story. So that's why you want to make your foundation. Mm -hmm. So if you were to break this down in steps, what are the easy steps that you could share with our listeners? So what I thought we'd do is take a really easy example of a piece of evidence and talk it through. So imagine there's a bank robbery and in the bank robbery, there's a teller and there's the teller supervisor. And eventually there's the police officer there. And the robber comes in the bank and he goes up to the teller and he hands the teller a note. And the note says in handwriting, this is a robbery. Give me your money. And now you're in trial. Guy's been arrested. Police have gathered the note. And 
you want to get that note into evidence. First thing you do is figure out who the witness is that gets that note into evidence. Well, what you want to prove is that the robber gave that note to a witness and what the note said. So how are you going to do that? You're going to call the teller, right? You don't call the supervisor because the supervisor didn't get the note from the robber and can't make that link. You don't call the police officer, even if the police officer got the note eventually, to make the link between the teller and the robber and the note. So you get the teller up there and you ask the following questions. First, you find out what the court's normal practice is, right? So how does the court want you to deal with actual physical exhibits? Some courts want you to pre-mark them. Some want you to mark them in front of the jury. And that's what I mean, the court's practice. So you find that out by going to court or by asking someone that's been in that court. But you have this exhibit and it's your bank robbery note. First thing you do is you make sure it's marked. You say, your honor, may I mark this as prosecution's exhibit one for identification only? Yes, you may. The next thing you do is make sure the judge knows that the other side's seen it. That's really important. So you say, I've shown this to counsel. So step one is you mark your note. Step two, I've shown it to counsel, or I am showing it to counsel, and give counsel time to look at it, depending on what the normal practice is in that court. Counsel, you've seen it, you've seen it. And then you go to your witness, Miss Smith, showing you exhibit one. That's the bank robbery note. Do you recognize this? Now, Miss Smith already testified that her name is Miss Smith and she's a teller at the bank. Yes, I recognize it. Where have you seen this before? Okay, so now she's seen this exhibit and where has she seen it before? That's the basic foundation. How do you recognize, I've seen it, I saw it at the bank. What day did you see it at the bank? Blah, blah, blah. How do you recognize it? I recognize the handwriting and I'll remember it. What is it? It's the note that the robber gave me. Your honor, may I move this into evidence, right? Move it into evidence. The next thing to do though, is to make sure that you don't move it into evidence and forget about it. So you ask the judge, your honor, may I publish or whatever the words are in your jurisdiction? May I show this to the jury? Your honor, may I put it up on the screen? Ms. Smith, now that you've seen this note, where did you get it? Then you go through all the questions that make it important, but you've got the foundation that is you've authenticated what it is and you're ready to go. Great. Well, in your earlier anecdote, you shared an example of when a witness was brought forward and after three hours of questions and objections that they were removed. Uh, if you're the practitioner on the receiving end of objections, how should they deal with objections? So there's always going to be an objection to something or another. Sometimes we get it wrong, you forget a question. Sometimes it's just the lawyer on the other side being a bit aggressive. Sometimes they don't understand where you're going. So the first thing to do is not get flustered. It's going to happen. It's always going to happen. And if you've taken all the steps beforehand, making sure you have the right witness, making sure you've asked your questions, you know you're going to get it out. Sometimes you may need a second witness because the objection might be, how do we know this is what it, you know, where did it go from here, right? So it's the demand note from the robber. Person gets it and turns it over. The judge may want you down the line to have the police officer that eventually got it testify that he got it. You can tell from his initials on it, and this is the chain. You can ask the judge to let you ask questions pending later 
production of this evidence. You can do an offer of proof. You can just rephrase your questions. You can just say to the teller, how do you know that this is the note you got? Well, I recognize the handwriting. These are my initials down at the bottom or however it is, but just rephrase it, retry. Sometimes I don't even want the judge to rule on the objection. I can hear the objection and know I missed something and just try to reframe it. I like to keep control and that's a way to keep control and let the jury know that I know what I'm doing. But if you've done your homework in advance, it shouldn't be a problem. Okay, that's great. Thank you. So let's talk about more sophisticated items of evidence and what our practitioners should take into consideration with this. Sure. It's always the same basic idea. You're proving something is what it is, what it what you're saying it is, right? It's easy with the bank robbery note, especially if it's distinctive, you know exactly what happened to it. The chain of custody is obvious, but there are certain things that are more difficult. The rules tell you what to do with a lot of them. So that's why I say read the rules, right? Let's take business records, or as they're called in the federal rules, records of regularly conducted activity. Under federal rule of evidence 902.11, so read your rules, they can be self-authenticated. That is, you can authenticate them in advance with a declaration of the witness that's the custodian of records and showing them to the other side. If you read your rules, you can see how you make your foundations for certain pieces of evidence. So business records are one. Official records, the same thing. You can make your case in advance. Foreign records, be careful with those. Foreign records of regularly conducted activities. Rule 902.12 comes right after business records, 902.11. And it says you can get those in. But if you read carefully, it says, but not in criminal cases. It says in civil cases. You've got to keep reading your rules because you'll find something later on in the Title 18 that tells you how to get in regularly conducted foreign records. But you really need to read the rules to figure it out. Some things the rules don't deal with all the way, like emails, texts, social media posts. One thing I would commend everybody to is there's a whole host of articles online, and there's a whole host of manuals that deal with these things. Actually, the Department of Justice is quite generous, and they often write texts and treaties and manuals for their own people, but they publish them. And there's some on getting and dealing with digital evidence. I would commend people to look for that. Other things online. Emails, you can think of them almost like letters. They're not handwritten. They don't have signatures, but you prove the signature from an email address, from people with knowledge of them. You can use either the sender or the recipient or a CC to prove the authenticity, the foundation of an email and you can use surrounding circumstances. Remember, proving authenticity isn't like proving a case. The judge isn't ruling when he's admitting evidence, he or she are admitting evidence. This is proven beyond all doubt. It's just whether the preliminary fact is proven to let it go to the jury. Whether or not someone questions that that's their email down the line is a different issue, a trial proof issue. But getting it in, you need just things that show some indicia of reliability and authenticity, and articles will tell you how to do that. Same with computer records. So computer records can be proven 
through computer experts who use things called hashtags. I'd say I, I'm not computer literate and can't figure it out, but even somebody from a background that's not computer heavy can figure out how to get in and how to keep out computer records. There's plenty of articles on that as well. One of the other kind of more complex things though that people should be aware of are summary witnesses. That's federal rule of evidence 1006. And that's how to get in and present huge quantities of documents. Let's say it's a case involving fraud and there are a thousand invoices that are sent out that are fraudulent. You want them all to get before the jury. You're not gonna admit them one after another after another. You're gonna have somebody that reviews them and can testify to them in summary fashion. That is, I went through the records, there are a thousand documents, they come from this account, they go to account number over there and, and tell the story. Often that's done through an agent or through an investigator or a paralegal. And it's done both on the defense side and on the prosecution side. 1006 tells you how to do that. You have to turn the documents over to the other side in advance, have them in court if necessary. But it allows you to produce a whole lot of documentary evidence in a summary fashion so that not everybody's falling asleep, the judge isn't yelling at you, and you can still tell an interesting story. Great. Okay. And then, Janet, would you talk to us about judicial notice? So there are other ways besides presenting things through witnesses to get stuff before the jury, some basic questions. Like, let's say in a trial, you need to prove that January 2 was a Monday for some reason and in a certain year. It would be kind of absurd to call a witness that would testify as somebody that looked at a calendar and did X, Y, and Z. But the rules have a way around that, which is to ask for judicial notice on things that are well-known, things that really don't need extra proof, like days of the week, certain well-known facts like, you know, the date World War II ended and an armistice was signed. Important facts like that can be proven through judicial notice, which is a way to avoid evidence and foundations in the traditional sense. The only other thing that I want to make sure that people understand about laying a foundation and all of the trial things is the rules of evidence need to be read, I think, in any case it's going to trial three times, at least, top to bottom. One, when you're trying to figure out how this case is going to get presented. So well in advance of trial, what evidence you're going to use, what evidence you can get in, Sometimes there's a piece of evidence that's key and important, but if you don't have a witness or the witness that would present it hasn't been subpoenaed to lay the foundation, you're never going to get that evidence in. So you better figure out what the rules are that control the evidence well in advance of trial. And the only way to do that is look at your evidence and read the rules. I try to read the rules again a week or two before trial to remind myself what the rules are, both in keeping and getting evidence in and helping to keep it out. And then right before trial, just as a refresher, so that I'm up on the ideas, so that I can do things quickly at trial. So I would just say, read, review, refresh, read, review, refresh. Wonderful. That's so much wonderful insight. Thank you for sharing that and taking the time to prepare all of this and share with our listeners. 
before we uh, recorded today, Janet, you and I had a chance to chat and you spoke to some common pitfalls that younger practitioners tend to make or things that they overthink. Before we wrap up, would you mind sharing just a few of those? I'm sure some of our listeners will feel like they can relate to that and, and maybe help them avoid them in the future. So when I said read, review, refresh, you need to do that, especially for when you're going to be making objections. I had a trial a few years ago and a prosecutor should have been aware that I was going to try to get in a piece of evidence and wasn't or hadn't really thought about what they were going to do. And I presented it and the prosecutor got up and yelled, objection, no, which isn't really an objection in any, (laughs) the judge turned to the prosecutor and said, please state that in the form of an objection, which the prosecutor did, did, and then the judge overruled it anyway. But so it's, it's to be ready. Sometimes, you know, something's objectionable and you can't figure out why. I would say that generally the reason is it's either a lack of foundation or the sister of a lack of foundation. You're asking the witness to speculate about something they don't know anything about. And so, I mean, a quiet objection foundation usually works, but be ready for the times where you know it's not right and you can't quite figure it out to think about what it is that you really want to say. Also, don't assume that the other side's going to stipulate or agree to something. In the same case where the prosecutor said objection, no, they wanted to get in some foreign documents. And as I said, there's special rules on foreign documents. And when it came time to put them into evidence, they moved them into evidence. And we objected for lack of compliance with the rules, which required certain kinds of notice. And the prosecutor got up and said, well, I thought they would stipulate. And the judge said, there's no requirement that they stipulate. If you want a stipulation, you better ask for an advance and be ready to move and to do what you need to do if they haven't stipulated. So anticipate. And if you anticipate and you ask for a stipulation, you're probably going to get one because the other side knows it's going to come in if you're ready to go and make sure you have your right witness. Sometimes a witness isn't going to make themselves available for a subpoena. If you wait till the day before trial or in trial to get the witness that's going to lay your foundation, let's say the bank teller, and the bank teller is on vacation in Bermuda, I don't know that you're going to get them to come back. You have to have subpoenaed them in advance. So just be prepared and make sure you've got your case planned out and taken care of in advance. Great. Well, thank you for sharing that. And again, like I said, thank you for taking the time to prepare all of these helpful tips for our listeners. We really appreciate it. And again, for our listeners, this is Janet Levine, partner with Kendall Brill and Kelly LLP. So thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.